This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everyone. My name is Augusta DeLomo, and I'm here today to talk with graduate student Eddie Watson, who's in the history department at UT. He is a specialist in modern British history with a particular focus on popular music. And today, Eddie is here to talk with us about the 55th anniversary of the Beatles' first concert in the United States. Uh, This was on February 11th. The Beatles first landed in New York City and then went to Washington, D.C. to play their first concert in the U.S. So, Eddie, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So first, let's start off with who are the Beatles, for those who don't know. Yeah, this uh, obscure little band. Right, this (laughs) highly unpopular, very, very mysterious. (laughs) Um, The Beatles were made up of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, uh, four young men from Liverpool in England. They're one of the most commercially successful musicians of all time, and they have 272 million certified sales worldwide, and it's claimed that the actual figure is more like 600 million. They are not only one of the most commercially successful musicians of all time, but they are widely acknowledged as being one of the most culturally influential too. Um, Almost every pop music artist since then, and still to this day, could cite them as an influence. Um, And in a way, they really kind of captured the zeitgeist of the 1960s more than anything else. They really encapsulated a mood. And their career trajectory kind of correlates to a lot of the overriding mood of the 1960s. So by the beginning, they're young, energetic, modern, new, stylish. By the end of the 1960s, they're displaying more influences from the counterculture. Um, And it's no coincidence that they split in 1970. Um, The end of the Beatles, to many, signified the end of that early optimism of the 1960s. And so I know you mentioned earlier that they're out of Liverpool. Is that where they came from? And what were some of their early musical influences? Yes. So the Beatles are part of this generation that grew up with the welfare state. Um, As teenagers, they had unprecedented spending power. Liverpool itself, many British cities focused on reconstructing their city centres in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, In fact, the Labour government under Clement Attlee introduced the Town and Country Planning Act in 1947, which encouraged local governments to prioritise the central area of a city as the space of cultural, social and political importance. And because of a lot, a lot of these towns and cities were vital to British industry, they were overwhelmingly working class. And as such, working class people were often at the centre of civic reconstruction. Uh, Liverpool, however, had not been too extensively bombed, uh, and the local council run by the Conservatives didn't really show much interest in reconstructing the city centre. So for Liverpudlians, their sense of pride really derived from the fact that it was a bustling port. Um, There was a perception that the port connected the city to a wider, modern, metropolitan world. Uh, It was a world very far removed from the derelict city centre that seemed to be dull, neglected and falling apart. As a result, the people of Liverpool had a unique access to American records. And some of the Beatles' earliest influences include Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, but also a lot of the Motown groups. So they're really kind of converging two of the main popular music styles of the time. And so how would you describe the musical style of the Beatles? Because most of us have heard a Beatles song, know a couple, but cohesively, how would you describe their style, especially early on? So the Beatles developed their style in a relatively short space of time. Their career spanned just seven years, and they often release an album every six months or so. Uh, Later in their careers, they kind of adopt many elements of psychedelic rock that was associated with countercultural movements. 
as well as numerous influences from Indian music, mainly from George Harrison, but they always maintained elements of rock and roll, however. British artists were often carbon copies of successful American acts as well at the time, but the Beatles were different in a few ways. First of all, they played their own instruments, which was unlike Elvis Presley, who was the most popular at that mm -hmm. time before them. Secondly, they were influenced by a multitude of American acts, uh, and they created something new, as I said, by blending the... It was more the melodies of Motown um, with the rock and roll instrumentation, and that's kind of what really defined their early albums in particular. The use of harmonies is something especially part of their initial success, So Lennon and McCartney are pretty much harmonizing on every single song, with George Harrison contributing sometimes as well. Thirdly, they had their own personalities, or that kind of thing you can vaguely describe as star quality. So, for example, everyone had their favorite Beatle. Mm -hmm. and Who was your favorite Beatle? My favorite Beatle? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to go with Paul McCartney. Okay. going to stick with him. Why? I think he, he gets undersold as a bassist. Okay. And a lot of those melodies are really interesting. And he kind of, he has, out of the Beatles songs, I feel like he has the most, I mean, there's some that are not as strong as the others. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, But yeah, so everyone has their, their everyone favorite Everyone has Beatle. their favorite Beatle. Another thing is their hairstyles were unusually long for the era, mm -hmm. as everyone kind of knows the Beatles bowl cut. Um, I spoiled one myself when I was 17 years old. Excellent. With Hopefully we can get some pictures to put on the website <laughs> for, for that. Yeah, there was a, I used to have it as my driving license photo for way too long. Yeah. And it was a very freeing moment. To oh my God. Much longer than socially acceptable. <laughs> yes. On top of this, their manager, Brian Epstein, suggested that they adopt a more professional approach to performing. Um, and so he sent them off to a local tailor and got them into suits. So you've got this kind of element of respectability wearing a suit, but also this kind of new, more fashionable, which is an odd thing to say in hindsight, looking Great. at them, fashionable haircut. Do you, are you familiar with how they met and how they sort of got together? I have a bit less on that. It's fine. It's, it's a bit more gradual. Yeah. So John Lennon starts a band called The Quarrymen, who mm -hmm. are a skiffle group. Mm -hmm. And then Paul McCartney turns up to one of their shows when he's, I think, 15 years old. Wow. And he incorporates him into the group. And they start writing songs together at quite a young age. And then George Harrison is next, I think. But the Ringo Starr being added is one of the more interesting because they did have another drummer before and a bassist. But they got rid of them and made Paul McCartney play bass. And they recruited Ringo Starr from a local group. Yeah, so they were kind of pieced together. Yeah, they slowly. were pieced together gradually, yeah. yeah. And so how, you talked a lot about their concerts, their image, their musical stylings. Is this how they generated excitement in their music? Or were there other elements that did that? And what made them more successful than other artists? Because this really was a period of experimentation like you talked about in the 60s. Mm -hmm. The Beatles paved the way really for British rock and roll acts. So before them, British artists had little to no success in the US market. By 1963, only three British artists had topped the Billboard Hot 100 since it began in 1958, and only one artist had done it before then. One of those was born in London, but basically raised in the United States. That's David Rose. Another was a clarinetist. Oh. <laughs> Mr. Acre Bilk. And finally, the other were an instrumental group called the Tornadoes. So basically, they're pretty much the first rock and roll group who play their own instruments and have the vocals themselves. So early on, the Beatles were formed in 1960, and soon after, their self-ascribed manager, Alan Williams, arranged a residency for them in Hamburg. It was mostly at a strip club that had been converted into a music venue. Classy venue. Yes. <laughs> 
And when uh, when they were in Hamburg, this was really when they refined their live show. They were playing every night. It taught them how best to preserve their voices for consecutive shows and things like that. It also exposed them to the nightlife. And as young teenagers, there's plenty of speculation as to what went on in those sort of early years, as you can imagine. And then during the next two years, the Beatles periodically resident in Hamburg. And in between this, they perform at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. And then in November 1961 is when they meet Brian Epstein, who was a local record store owner. They appointed him as their manager in January 1962. He began negotiating record contracts and they were signed to George Martin under EMI's Parlophone label. In terms of singles, they initially released Love Me Do in October 1962, which peaked at number 17 in the UK's record retailer chart. And after that modest success, they in January 1963, released the single Please Please Me. And this is the one which really kind of puts them to stardom in the UK, at least. Uh, It goes straight to number one, and it starts a string of hits, which ultimately ends up with a record-breaking 17 British number one singles. She Loves You, which was released in August of 1963, was the fastest-selling record in UK history at that time, with 750,000 copies sold in just under four weeks. The band toured the UK three times in the first half of 1963 and gained a reputation for their kind of comical and cheeky attitude to all of the new media attention they were getting. No! (laughs) Sorry! Next question! (laughs) No, we need money first. How much money do you expect to take out of this country? Half a crown, ten dollars. The question here. Thank you. Don't worry, Decatur, cut that crap out. Cut that crap out! Crap out! Are you afraid of what the American Barbers Association is going to think of you? Well, we've run quicker than the English ones. We'll have a go in. <laughs> Did you want to get a haircut at all? No. Nope, no, 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 thanks. I had one yesterday. <laughs> That's no lie. It's true. true. What your music does to these people? Uh, no, no. It pleases them, I think. Well, they must do, because they're buying it. Why does it excite you so much? We don't know, really. I've been here before another group and be managers. <laughs> Soon enough, we start seeing the things we typically associate with early Beatlemania, which is they're greeted with rapturous enthusiasm and screaming fans, as they often deposed the headline acts that they were touring with due to audience demand. So they would just be like, the audience would keep chanting for the Beatles even before they'd played and after they'd played. (laughs) So eventually they just bumped them up to the top of the list everywhere they went. In late October, the Beatles toured Sweden for five days and on their return, several hundred screaming fans were waiting for them at the airport in the pouring rain. Uh, Several journalists and photographers were there too, some of whom were from the BBC, and this kind of scene would become very familiar. Also in the airport that day happened to be Ed Sullivan and his entourage, and he actually thought the reception was for a member of the royal family. Wow. Um, So that's when he first sort of became aware of who they were. This fervent atmosphere is soon dubbed by the press as Beatlemania. How long do you think Beatlemania will last? As long as you all keep coming. (laughs) (laughs) The Beatles are great! Harvey Henry says so! I love them. I don't care what anybody thinks. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I'll love them. And Paul McCartney, if you are listening, Adrian from Brooklyn loves you with all her heart. I love you, Paul, and please come to the window so I can just see you. I saw you smoking before, and I kissed the limousine you looked at him. But I love you, and I want you, Paul. Please look at And Ringo, you can look at too, because I like you. Why do you like them so much? I don't know, there's just something about them. I don't know, when they sing. Aren't they as good as anybody else? No, they're better. Like the Beatles? Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah. 
Good as Presley? Yeah. And authorities were seriously concerned that there was something psychologically wrong with all of these young screaming girls. <laughs> yeah, most of them were young women. What's a woman's opinion of the Beatles? A young woman's opinion, that is. I think they're sharp. Just gorgeous. He's gorgeous. Have you tried to sneak into the hotel? Yes. Yes, we were in the hotel. How far in did you get? Twelve floor. Well, the Domenico was not like that. We came here, we came here at 6 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 to see them, and all they do is push your father and father away, and then they don't even let you see them. You've been here since 6? Yes. Have you ever been this crazy about any other entertainer? No. and that's what's so amazing. We don't know why we're like this. There was kind of a, a sexualized undertone of the mania, and this is reflective of an increase in the interest in like sexual knowledge and celebrity culture in the press. So they were, yeah, a lot of the media types were very sort of baffled by this success. And it was deemed to be a real problem. So they actually, uh, a lot of these reports pointed out how many police resources were going into keeping the Beatles safe. And a lot of the appeal of their early songs were... Um, because they were directly addressing the audience. So it's, you know, I want to hold your hand. Right, and they take that as my hand, literally, right. yeah. Yeah, it's like they're communicating directly to them. Right. But Paul McCartney was adamant that the Beatles needed a big hit in the US before going on tour. Uh, George Harrison had visited his sister in Illinois in 1963 and felt fairly despondent by the lack of reaction to the Beatles' music, so he got it played on the radio, and they had this exclusive access talking to George Harrison and then to very minimal <laughs> listener enthusiasm. And so what is it that actually, what is the single or that gets that traction in the U.S.? The first one, uh, in December 1963, only a few weeks after JFK is assassinated, there is a DJ, Carol James, in Washington, D.C., and he plays I Want to Hold Your Hand on air. And it was given to him by a 15-year-old girl from Maryland named Marsha Albert, who'd watched a, a CBS report. She'd liked what she'd heard and got a copy of the single from a British Airways flight attendant. And in her letter to the DJ, she claimed, why can't we have music like that here in America? Taped versions of the broadcast soon circulated on other radio stations throughout the US, and demand for the single was so high that Capitol Records brought forward the release date to December 26th. So he started off being sort of shelved, this, you know, this British band who people seem to like over there. <laughs> and uh, so when they arrive in the US, uh, after the single is played, and then there starts to become this momentum mm -hmm. for them, was there a sense that they brought fresh hope or optimism, especially because of the really desolate atmosphere in the US after the assassination? Was there a sense that that was something that they were bringing? This is a really interesting question. American rock music critic Greil Marcus suggests that this is something we've kind of created when looking back at the Beatles' first trip to the US. I would say that there's some connections that we can make between the JFK assassination and the arrival of the Beatles, even if people weren't particularly articulating it at that time. And that's not to say that the Beatles would only have been successful because the country was in shock, but it was very timely. 
So in December 1963, CBS ran a report that was actually pulled from the day that JFK was assassinated. And in it, they're reporting on the Beatles phenomenon in the UK. The reporter, Alan Kendrick, epitomizes this kind of attitude from older generations towards the Beatles, calling them four lads with, quote, dish mop hairstyles. <laughs> Doesn't seem like an inaccurate uh, no. depiction. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and included all the kind of usual scenes you see, you know, screaming fans. But it also crucially included the live footage, which was where Marshall Albert first saw the Beatles performing. Um, also, on this point, Kendrick concluded that the Beatles make, quote, non-music and wear non-haircuts. Mm. And there's a lot of things you can say about the haircuts, but I wouldn't call it a non-haircut. <laughs> non it's definitely a choice. Very much a haircut. Um, <laughs> So young people saw the footage for themselves and the fact that it kind of annoyed him, an adult, and excited British teenagers definitely appealed to them. And likewise, in December, the Baltimore Sun warns how America had better take thought as to how it will deal with the invasion, wondering if a Beatles go home sign would do the trick, mm. which evidently it did not. Um. So can you talk a little bit about some of the successes of the tour and maybe some of the problems that they encountered beyond the adult scrutiny of the haircuts. <laughs> um, so they land on February 7th, 1964 at JFK to a screaming crowd of around 5,000. And in some of their first press conferences, they took questions kind of in the same stuffy kind of tone. Um, so stuff like they're just a bunch of other Elvis Presleys, um, cutting their hair. It always comes back to the hair with the Beals. Um, <laughs> and they kind of, they take it in their stride and give the banter quite right back and so again, it's part of their comical nature in dealing with this kind of thing. Uh, they were booked on the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th, and their highly anticipated performance drew 73 million viewers in approximately 23 million households, which we can estimate is around 34% of the American population at the time, which was a record for US television. Um, definitely a record for the Ed Sullivan show. And during the first week of April 1964, the Beatles occupied 12 positions on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart, including the top five, which is kind of where we're going to again with a lot of streaming services and things like that, getting a lot of, you know, Ed Sheeran songs yes. <laughs> at the top of the chart. It's that, kind of, it's that kind of thing. But the first tour lasted just 10 days. So in August of 1964, they come back again for a wider US tour. And this is when they kind of experience more of those problems. In Vancouver and British Columbia, 7,000 fans rushed the stage and around 240 ended up in hospital. Uh, police in many cities were not especially prepared for this kind of phenomenon. They thought it was just going to be another Elvis or something like that. They weren't quite expecting how rowdy these crowds were going to be. And there's some great footage of policemen holding their ears <laughs> because of all the screens, which is just great. One of the main problems they had while touring the US was the lack of adequate sound equipment. So, for example, in Shea Stadium in 1965, they're basically being played over the tannoy system at a baseball ground. And you can imagine that doesn't sound particularly high quality. No. Um, but also at most of their shows, their sound equipment's just not equipped to deal with the noise of the fans screaming. <laughs> so that's why whenever you go back and look at old footage, that's the, that's the main thing you're hearing. You can't actually get much of their music from there. In a more serious way, in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, the Beatles were due to play to a segregated audience. Uh, Paul McCartney was very open about his opinion, which I think gave Brian Epstein a minor heart attack. 
Um, to DJ Larry Kane, he said, "It's a bit silly to segregate people. I just think it's stupid. You can't treat other human beings like animals. That's the way we all feel, and that's the way people in England feel." So what happened was the Beatles threatened to refuse to play in Jacksonville unless the audience would be integrated. And rather than risk the wrath of disappointed Beatles fans, the promoters agreed. So in future, they made it integration part of their contractual obligation to be playing. But by 1966, touring becomes a lot more hazardous. The KKK picketed outside many of their shows, threatening to assassinate them. John Lennon's comments about being bigger than Jesus that are very famous.、Um, there was a huge backlash to that, particularly in the U.S. And as I said, as they played in bigger stadia, they came up with problems like at Shea Stadium, where they're amplified over the tannoy,、uh, and then at Dodger Stadium in L.A., fans rushed the stage, which led to a clash with authorities, and it took about two hours to restore order. So this kind of results in the Beatles stopping touring altogether because they become very disillusioned with the whole thing, and that's around 1966. And that's when they really start focusing on recording studio albums. So they stop doing quite so many covers, which they did in the first few albums,、um, and they start focusing on original stuff. And this is where they display more influences from countercultural things. So. This is when they start thinking of Rubber Soul and Revolver. They start incorporating more indie music into the things. They start experimenting a bit more, and this is where sort of the later part of the Beatles' career really starts to get going. The sort of Sgt. Pepper era and beyond. Awesome. And so, when we're thinking about just the end of the Beatles, so you you mentioned at the beginning that they break up around 1970,、mm-hmm. um, and I, you know. I think that I have a sort of vague understanding of what happens, but you know, I think a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions about why the Beatles break up,、um, and then with the assassination of John Lennon, that that kind of masked that. So, can you talk a little bit about the end of the Beatles and their breakup, particularly as kind of how it's relating relating to that period as a whole? Sure. So, the Beatles' last album is Let It Be, and those sessions are notoriously known to be fractious. Tensions in the band are seeming to be high, and this is where the kind of the mythology around Yoko Ono breaking up the Beatles、right. really starts to emerge. Yes, I didn't want to lead with that, but yes, that is you know that's what you hear, right? Is Yoko、yeah. Ono destroyed the Beatles? Yeah. And, yeah, that classic sort of narrative, and I think that's that's I think that's a bit of a misconception. I, I feel like some of these tensions we start seeing with the touring really start emerging in their recording process as well. So, the initial part of the Beatles and their success is that John Lennon brings them more. The more avant-garde、mm-hmm. stuff related to youth culture there, and Paul McCartney brings more of the pop melodies, and they kind of blend them together, and then the Beatles come out. <laughs> right. So what happens as the decade goes on is that John Lennon increasingly realizes that he wants to pursue his own more avant-garde sort of style. So you see it in the White Album with Revolution Nine, which is essentially somebody saying number nine on repeat. To very eerie noises in the background,、um, famously mocked in the in the Simpsons, which is quite wonderful. But it seems to me to be more of a, an artistic difference. Really, I feel like John Lennon has realised that that kind of moment of the '60s is starting to be over, and he wants to really pursue less commercial and more artistic kind of musical output. Yeah, and so. What would you say then is the historical significance of the Beatles and really the contemporary memory of them and their tour in the U.S.? So historians should really try and avoid some of the pitfalls of the fanatical sort of glowing accounts of the、mm-hmm. Beatles, what Marcus Collins has termed hagiographical、mm. hagiography, relating to the worshiping of saints.、Mm. Yeah, <laughs>、um, but they also should find a balance between that 
and the snobbery of academics who have historically viewed popular culture as crass or sort of beneath studying. So there's a long sort of series of this beginning of when the Beatles are around. So the biologist um, Julian Huxley called Beatlemania ludicrously orgiastic in 1966, um, educationalist turned psychoanalyst David Holbrook said the Beatles were, quote, a masturbation fantasy, citing how a glove puppet show featuring the Beatles induced a sexual ecstasy approaching orgasm among primary school children. The historian Eric Hobsbawm predicted that the Beatles would endure a slow descent and fade into obscurity, which quite clearly didn't happen. And then, even if it's nothing sort of drastically wrong, Arthur Marwick kind of covers them, but often gets a lot of the details wrong. Um, so the first chart appearance and the breakup dates are wrong. And this really comes from their sort of a tendency to view popular culture as cheap and void of meaning, especially when it comes to looking at youth culture and subcultural studies. So early Beatles stuff in particular is often dismissed because it was so popular with young women. So the screaming, more sort of commercial side of things, which kind of ignores the role that mass communication has in uh, imagined communities. But also this, this kind of narrative ignores the fact that they did have sway among older countercultural audiences by the late 1960s. And it kind of it ignores their almost universal appeal. So there's not really... I feel like with the Beatles stuff, people like the old stuff mm-hmm. or they like the new stuff better, but they still will like their whole catalogue. But I feel like the Beatles should really be placed in sort of context by saying that although to many these sort of social and cultural change of the swing 60s are in many ways very limited, um, anyone with a disposable income could have access to a Beatles record. It was more transformative on a personal level and allowed individuals to connect with a wider global phenomenon surrounding youth culture. There's also a cultural heritage we have to take into account as well. So over the past few years, Liverpool Museum's website has claimed that tourism brings about £20 million a year to the city, most of which is believed to be based off of the Beatles. Um, And it's been claimed that there's been a 66% growth in economic value of the visitor economy there from 2009 to 2017. So there has been a particular spike recently as well. So this isn't something that has just always been there. Well, the Beatles have obviously been very famous since they arrived but there's kind of more of a, as they've got further away in time, there's been an increase in sort of that kind of remembrance and cultural heritage. Yeah, I mean, it also seems particularly applicable today because of the celebrity fan culture and right. people talk about stan culture on the internet, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the rabidly devoted fans that will just trash other celebrities on the internet, that, that it seems very similar right. to some of the things that you're talking about. Yeah, it, it is very similar. Um there's sort of this narrative that you're either a Rolling Stones fan or, mm-hmm. or, or a Beatles fan. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, the reality is there's way more crossover than people like to make out. It's, right. Um, yeah, definitely. It's, that's definitely a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the sort of contemporary memory of the Beatles tour, um, their performance on the Ed Sullivan show is perhaps one of the moments that kind of lingers longest in the memory. It's a moment that clearly signifies that they've arrived in America, Um, It wasn't their best performance musically as such, but the excitement that it generated um, and that it was directly into people's households across America was really significant. I meant to say this earlier, but it's fine. Sorry. There's also the role of the transistor radio Mm -hmm. in how they developed. So there's really a technological side to this, um, which was something that was relatively new, um, especially on that kind of scale. Like There'd always been musicians before, but this is the first time that it was really in people's households and it kind of goes back to that intimacy part again, where it's directly connecting the band to the listener. 
Also, the Ed Sullivan Show and their US tour features prominently in Ron Howard's 2016 documentary, Eight Days a Week, which really outlines how the tensions start creeping in in the middle of their career. Um, Obama honored McCartney at the White House in 2010, awarding him a Library of Congress Gershwin Prize. Uh, he said that they, quote, helped delay the soundtrack for an entire generation and that they changed everything overnight. So while this is hyperbolic in, in a lot of ways, this is how it's remembered. Um, and this in and of itself is pretty interesting. And I think that the tour really demonstrates how big the American market was, um, both quantitatively and in terms of global influence. So American popular culture starts becoming more and more ubiquitous in international youth culture. And if that tour had not been as successful as it was, then there's a good chance that a lot of the cultural mythology around the Beatles generally may be completely different. Um, and that tour really places the Beatles onto a global stage, and it had unintended consequences too, pushing them towards creating more studio albums. But I think it goes back to this idea again of the Beatles arriving and restoring the optimism and hope of the early 60s as a nation was mourning the death of a young and energetic president. Um, and again, even though it's not something that was really articulated too much at the time, there is, you know, the, the news report that leads to them being played on the radio more. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's pulled because of JFK's assassination and that it comes back again in December. Um, there's a reason why that they chose to replay it again in December, I think. And I have one final question for mm -hmm. you, Eddie. What is your favorite Beatles song? Oh, that's such a hard question. You can pick a couple. Okay. Um, I'll pick one from each little era. Oh, there's like, okay. there's yes. like the early era, 63 to 65, mm -hmm. the middle kind of era, yeah. which is pretty much 65, 66, mm -hmm. and then later era. So I'll go for the early era, I think Please Please Me is my favorite song. Mm -hmm. Um I think that that's where Lennon and McCartney's harmonization really comes out well. A close second would probably be She Loves You from that mm -hmm. part. I really like the kind of cheesy major sixth note that of the year that it ends on because it's essentially uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney and George Harrison all sing a different note. But it comes to make this really kind of flat, mm -hmm. <laughs> odd-sounding one. From the middle era, uh, there's a track on Revolver called She Said, She Said. Mm. which is, everyone always says Ringo Starr is not a good drummer, and that's kind of a really good counterpoint to that. Mm. Apparently John Lennon said that Ringo Starr wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. Yes, I have heard that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great quote, but that's more because apparently Paul McCartney is an excellent drummer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we'll see. And that might be, you know, trying to dig him out of a hole. Yeah. Um, Something from the later stuff, I'd probably pick... Oh, there's a single, uh, Hey Bulldog, mm. which has got this really great um, opening riff to it. And that's actually one of the first Beatles songs I enjoyed. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a really random one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, on that note, thank you, Eddie, for coming. Um, and this has been another great episode of 15 Minute History. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.